Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to this special episode of The Other Half. Chat, Hallie Rubenhold on the five victims of Jack the Ripper. I hope that you've all had a lovely and safe festive season and that the hangovers aren't too bad from New Year's. And if you're listening to this episode in the future, well, I hope things are better where you are than right now at the start of 2022. Today, I will be speaking to historian and author Hallie Rubenhold. Now, those of you with good memories may remember that I did a promo for her new podcast, Bad Women, back in episode 4.4. Well, I was so intrigued by the whole thing that I asked her back to do this special chat episode. The story of the Victorian serial killer, Jack the Ripper, is one of the most intriguing mysteries in the sordid history of crime. In 1888, Five women were discovered in the slum neighbourhood of Whitechapel in East London. Their throats had been cut and bodies mutilated. The killer was never caught. The killer may have struck more times, but these women, often referred to as the Canonical Five, are the only ones officially considered to be part of this crime spree by a killer nicknamed Jack the Ripper. These women were stigmatised at the time as being prostitutes, and details of their murders were luridly covered in national and even international press. Because of this, and the fact that the killer was never caught, the story has captured the imaginations of millions over the last one and a half centuries, with hundreds of books, documentaries, and even a museum dedicated to the Ripper murders but it is striking how the focus for all of this has almost exclusively been on the killer, even though we have no idea who he is. The victims, Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes and Mary Jane Kelly, have been almost entirely forgotten. That is, until last year, when British historian and author Hallie Rubenhold released her book The Five, the untold lives of the women killed by Jack the Ripper. She has now also turned the book into a podcast named Bad Women. And she was good enough to speak to me last month. So, without further ado, let's get into it.
Alicia, how are you today? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me. So for my listeners who do not know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Hallie Rubenholt and I am a social historian. I've written a book called The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper, which won the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction in 2019. Uh, I also have written a number of other books uh, about social history, including The Covent Garden Ladies, which was made into Harlots for the BBC. So what got you interested in the story of Jack the Ripper and his victims? Well, I think it's an interesting question because, like many people, I think initially I was always off-put by Jack the Ripper and all the mythology surrounding it because it seemed very sordid. It seemed like what some people have described to me as a term which I will use, junk history. It didn't seem like a reputable field of history. But the interesting thing is I noticed that because it had sort of slumbered in the shadows for so long and wasn't really recognised by academic historians, it was sort of left to who are hobbyists to tell the story and basically to own the story of Jack the Ripper, which has often just been repeated mythology with very little inquiry into the actual historical context to all of this, to the events themselves. And and I looked into that specifically because I was looking to write another book, which was kind of following on the heels of the success of The Covent Garden Ladies, which was a story about the ordinary lives of ordinary women who just happened to work in the sex trade in the 18th century. And I was very interested in, well, I am very interested in the ordinary, in the prosaic, in the day-to-day of our ancestors. And so I wanted to write another book, which sort of did what the Covent Garden ladies did, but for the 19th century. And I thought, well, who were the most famous sex workers of the Victorian era? And then my mind automatically went to the victims of Jack the Ripper. And the interesting thing was then I started exploring what had been written. And I was absolutely shocked to find virtually nothing had been written in terms of a full book about these women's lives that contextualized their lives, that looked at their lives outside of the mythology and the story of the person who murdered them. And I thought, my God, this really is a story that must be told. So you mentioned there that obviously, uh, although some stuff has been written by Jack the Ripper, almost nothing by his victims. Why do you think that is? Well, I think for a very long time, uh, the story of Jack the Ripper was basically a whodunit story, you know, and it's an unsolved mystery. Uh, Everybody wants to solve the mystery. Everybody wants to identify who the killer is. I mean, I think that's completely fruitless endeavor. We're never, ever going to find out who he was. It's just too much time has passed. If they weren't able to do it in the 19th century, I can't see how we would be able to do it today. No amount of tainted DNA is going to tell us that, even if we were able to recover anything which was in any way somewhat reliable, which you wouldn't be able to. It's just, it's just, it's just impossible. You know, people like an unsolved story. We are obsessed with murder in our culture and we have been for a very long time. 
there's a long history, really going all the way back to the 17th century, really, you know, writing about ballads and, and gallows confessions and things like that, which taps into that fascination with murder and criminality. And, yeah, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you know, murder and crimes of passion and these sorts of things really sit at the heart of, of, of drama and human beings like drama. But I think we have evolved beyond that now. And I think we live in a world which is much more empathetic in some cases and which is less inclined to judge in the modern era why people did things. And I think it's time to, to you know, we need to step out of just this uh, hero villain true crime narrative that we're we're kind of stuck in and look at the world around a crime and look at the people it involved and look at the society and look what it says about the society and the time and i think personally that's much more interesting and there are a lot of micro stories hidden within that type of excavation of a true crime story i also wonder if there's an element of class in here, because obviously the victims who we'll come onto in a moment uh, were, in general, of, of a quite a low class. And if you look at the list of people who are accused of, thought of, maybe being Jack the Ripper, and I don't want to talk too much about him because that's not what the book is about. But a lot of them are of a higher class. I mean, one that comes to mind is a member of the British royal family is accused of being Jack the Ripper. Do you think there is a high sort of level of, of classism about this whole? You know, who is Jack the Ripper? I, I don't necessarily think there is. I mean, I think there's a whole lot of conspiracy theory, absolute tripe. I think, you know, and a lot of that was created in the 70s, just completely manufactured, by the way. And and I think the story of Jack the Ripper, however, has always tapped into what the current era's concerns and, and fears are, and it mirrors it back to us. You know, that was the case when crimes were even being committed at the time. They were being covered, and people were speculating about who Jack the Ripper was and all these ridiculous ideas. You know, he was a doctor, he was a sailor, he was, he was this, he was Jewish, he was, you know, it reflects back to a society what their neuroses are, what their obsessions are at any given time. And, you know, the 1970s, late 60s, people were thinking in terms of conspiracy theories that, you know, there's some really kind of dark, hidden element that are that's pulling the strings. And, and so naturally that finds its way into Jack the Ripper literature and storytelling. So it, it's, I don't think it's necessarily about class. I think the fact that we've forgotten about the victims is about class. I think the fact that... You know, they were dismissed in their own lives because in their during their own lifetimes because they were women of the working class, because they were women, because they were considered the least important components of society. They were disposable. And because of that, it was much easier to shift the focus on to the question of who the killer was. Because um, and you know, you look at a lot of the way in which the story of Jack the Ripper has been written. I mean, even to the modern day, I'm thinking of Bruce Robinson in particular and his book, which, you know, so full of vitriol about like why this killer wasn't caught, why this killer wasn't caught. It was such a failure, but absolutely no compassion for the victims whatsoever and no interest in the victims. You know, so why are you getting so angry about the murder if you don't care about the victims. It's obviously for another reason, because you care about the structures of society, you care about the establishment. And I think in that, there is a 
a ton of, of classism and, and gender bias as well. So moving sort of on from that, your book, as we've been talking about, is about social history, about researching the lives of ordinary people rather than your, you know, your royals, your generals, your nobles. What are the challenges in researching these lives that are so often hidden? When I was a postgraduate um, at the University of Leeds, and I was told by a quite an old member of the faculty that, um, bear in mind this was in the 90s, that you know, there was really no point in spending much time looking at the lower classes and their lives and the lives of ordinary people because they didn't leave records. They weren't uh, they weren't literate, and therefore we don't have diaries and letters. We don't have all the things that we normally have from the middle and upper classes, and and therefore we can't tell their lives. And you know, it's sort of like case closed. And I remember thinking that just can't be right. And the interesting thing is, along comes digitization about twenty odd years ago, and that's really changed the landscape for studying. Uh, about the lives of people who were forgotten, who slipped through the cracks, um, because there's so much material out there. And all you have to do is, you, you, I mean, the censuses are absolutely fantastic for 19th century and, and early 20th century research. Um, they're absolutely pregnant with all sorts of information about how people lived their lives and where they lived and who they lived with. And um, and you can trace them through the decades and, and how their lives changed. And that's absolutely fascinating. I mean, the, the typical the things that most people have relied on, birth, deaths, and marriage records, parish records, workhouse records, um, company records sometimes, army records, uh, social housing ledgers, all, all of these things are available. And you can trace people through them. You can also trace them through newspapers. It's, it's quite amazing how frequently ordinary people turn up in newspapers. Um, you know, it could be for something as silly as so-and-so's son was knocked down by a cart on this street on this date and um, and the boy's okay or the boy isn't okay. I mean, things like that. It's like, wow, that's, that's, that's really amazing. I mean, if you were alive, you left traces of that life in one way or another. It's not to say we won't always have a full set of records. We almost will never have a full set of records, but we'll be able to catch glimpses of a life and and be able to make an assessment to a certain degree of what that life was and what it was like. I mean, I hear a lot of resonances. So I'm, as many of my listeners know, I'm a medieval historian by training, meaning sort of 12th, 11th century or so. And so what you're describing there is a, sounds like an awful lot of the challenges of looking at basically anyone who isn't a king in in the Middle Ages. You've got to try and see these snapshots, see who wrote the snapshots, why it was written, what the time was like, and, and piece together a story. It's interesting that you would point out that this reminds you of being a medieval historian uh, and the processes involved, because that is precisely the sorts of methodology that medievalists and archaeologists would be using to reconstruct worlds that are lost in the pre-modern era. And there's absolutely no reason why it can't be used to reconstruct lives in the modern era. And I think we just have to be determined to want to hear those voices. And, And it really does come down to a choice. It's like, you know, and I think history is really shifting now in terms of how we regard this. You know, people were deliberately left out of the record. Many, many, many people, the majority of the population 
was deliberately left out of when I say the record. I mean, it's what we as historians have recognized as the record. So anybody literate who's left things. But they haven't really been, as I've, as I've just described, you know, they appear in the record. They don't necessarily give their own uh, account of what happened. Sometimes they do, quite amazingly, in workhouse records, for example. But, you know, they appear. And the question has to be answered. And I think history is shifting in this direction, which is, do we just continue to write history as we've always been writing history, which is, we just tell the stories of the people we know? and exclude all this other stuff because there are a lot of imponderables. You know, the best we can do to to try to reconstruct these lives um, from the bits and pieces that we actually have. And we owe it to them to do that. We owe it to them. You know, history should be about a lot more than just what a king did, what a parliamentarian did, what laws were passed, um, what some famous person did on some given day. It's just, history shouldn't be just a roll call of events. You know, no wonder so many school kids get turned off by it. No wonder so many adults got turned off by it at school and, you know, aren't interested in history today because that's what history is for so many people. But if we expand the definition of history simply to be the stories of everyone. This is a story of the past, of how we became who we are today. Suddenly, history is a lot more inclusive, and there is no need or reason to exclude bits of information that you find that may not be complete, simply because it isn't as full as somebody's diary. There's so much to be gained by trying to hear all the voices, by trying to bring more bits of what was lost into the framework. And I I cannot see any disadvantages to that at all. So what was life like for ordinary people in London around the time of Jack the Ripper and his victims? Well, life was, not surprisingly, very difficult. Difficult in a way that we in the 21st century, living in a, in, in a developed nation, couldn't even really fully begin to understand. Because if you were poor, you were physically challenged every single day of your life, not just in how you were going to get food, but quite often how you were going to keep a roof over your head, how you were going to keep well, how you were just going to keep your life together and the the lives of anybody else that you were looking after. Physically, I mean, the lives of the poor were... I mean, they were truly terrible in a way, as I said, we can't even imagine. I mean, the the actual fabric of housing, the condition of housing was so, so bad. You know, large families living in two rooms, really sort of about eight by 10 feet, no running water. Often you're getting water from from standing water outside or a standpipe. And we know all the way through the 19th century, you know, this was often contaminated and, and John Snow discovered this. In fact, it was, you know, we were talking about London and Whitechapel wasn't the only place where the poor lived. In fact, London was was completely riddled with, with slums. And, and one of those happened to be in, in Soho, where um, the water was contaminated and, and people got, got cholera and typhus and, and died. When I say life is challenging, that's too kind of a way to put it. I think life was intolerable actually. And you just had to live through it. And if you're a woman, you have very few opportunities to actually get out of the poverty cycle. um, Because 
you, as soon as you were old enough, you were married and you were bearing children again. And those children kept you in place, kept you stuck to the household. There were very few opportunities to earn money. Women's work deliberately paid less than men's work because women were intended by society never to be the breadwinners. You needed a man to survive. And so I think the cards were really stacked against you if you were a woman in particular. So who were these women, the the titular five that are the subject of your book and, and obviously your podcast? Well, the, these are the five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper. So it, there's some argument as to how many women Jack the Ripper actually did kill. And they're collectively known as the Whitechapel murders. And some people argue there were you know, nine, some people argue 12, some people argue 11, some people argue 13. It goes on and on and on. I, I was never really interested in getting into why some women are counted amongst Jack Ripper's victims and some aren't because that's that kind of goes into the realm of Ripperology. When I wrote this book, I, I was just interested in taking what I would describe as a core sample from a time. And these five women, the five acknowledged victims of Jack the Ripper, so that's Marianne or Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. So those women, I thought, would be a very interesting sample to study as a data set. And, and I was right, because we tend to think that the poor and especially poor women had lives which were all identical, and they, they weren't identical. All of these women led full and very interesting and disparate lives from each other. I mean, of course, there are some similarities. Most of them struggled with, with, with alcohol addiction to a certain greater or lesser degree. You know, uh, uh, they ended up being separated from their husbands at some point, or their common law partners. And, but this was the lot that, that women faced. But I think all five of these women helped to paint a very clear picture of what it was like to be poor and a woman in the Victorian era. So these women did not receive justice after their after their murder. Jack the Ripper was never caught and, and we still don't know who he was. What were the failings of the police investigation? Well, the police were simply not equipped to deal with what today we would call a serial killer. They didn't have the manpower. They didn't have the skill. They didn't have the expertise. They just couldn't begin to cover all of the ground that there was in the East End. And the poor don't always trust the police. And so in addition to not having the men on the ground Sometimes it's very difficult to get straight answers from people about what they saw, what they didn't see, which might amount to potentially grassing up the neighbors or things like that. But more to the point, you know, the forensics just didn't exist at the time. When the bodies were found, they were moved. I mean, today that would never happen, or at least most people know better than to do something like that. It's, it, there are lots of factors that um, meant that they were just unable to actually catch this person. So you've mentioned before 
that these women were stigmatised as being prostitutes when many of them were not. Why did that happen? Again, there are a lot of reasons for this. And, and a lot of it, it's, it's about understanding the nuance of Victorian language, about Victorian society, and how they regarded poor women. So it was largely believed that a, a woman without a home, and all of these women lived in lodging houses in the East End. And lodging houses, it's important to remember, were described as homes for the homeless. So there was temporary accommodation. And, you know, most people who lived in lodging houses kind of bounced between lodging houses for a couple of nights and then they may sleep rough on the streets and then they might go to a casual ward, which is like a short-term workhouse. They might go to the workhouse. And, and you know, this is a, a never-ending cycle like this. People were bouncing between these places and they were effectively homeless. And it was believed at the time that any woman who – didn't have a home to go to, who didn't have a husband to look after her or a father or, you know, a male family member had failed in life, which all of these women had. And, it, you know, if you failed in life, you basically were no longer an effective mother and wife. That's that's what failure was. And all of these women came from broken marriages or broken partnerships. And What's then thought of is is that you are morally defective. And being morally defective means that you're no longer a woman of any character. You know, you're not doing what a woman's supposed to be doing. And so being morally defective extends not just to your circumstances, but also to your physical body, which means you would do anything, obviously, because you were desperate and you were morally depraved. And that also means you would probably have sex out of marriage, which a lot of these women did. You know, a lot of women lived with men out of wedlock who had separated from their husbands because there was no way of actually getting divorced if you were poor at all. So in the 19th century, a woman who had sex out of marriage under any circumstances at all, even rape and incest victims, was considered a fallen woman. And a fallen woman was a whore and a whore was a prostitute. So morally defective women were prostitutes and were described as such. You know, so there's there's that whole aspect of it. There's the other aspect, which is anybody who's out on the street, and uh, remarkably, really, this hasn't really changed very much today, any woman who's out on the street at night alone in a bad part of town is thought to have got what is coming to her. And in the 19th century, it was believed that any woman out on the street by herself in the worst part of town was a prostitute. And we know this the year before the Ripper murders began. Um, there was a case of Elizabeth Cass in 1887, who happened to be a seamstress and she was out walking around Regent Street, which at the time at night could be a patrolling ground for sex workers. And a police constable mistook her for a sex worker and arrested her. And she said, she absolutely was not. And her employer came forward and testified that she was not. And the whole thing became very ugly. And the police officer had perjured himself. And from then on, it was decided by uh, the Metropolitan Police that, in fact, women had to self-identify as prostitutes in order to be called a prostitute. And somebody had to have actually seen her solicit because it was so much gray area here. And then a year later, you know, we have these five women who, or, or actually there were only four of them who were out that evening. You know, the natural conclusion was drawn. 
Oh, well, they must be prostitutes. They're outside by themselves, worst part of town. It's happened all the time. It was just assumed that women, you know, these women were bad women and bad women were prostitutes. Bad women were whores. So therefore, Jack the Ripper killed prostitutes. So what did these women actually do? I mean, how did they come to be in Whitechapel uh, on those evenings when, when they were murdered? Well, most of them had come from broken marriages. And four of them, four of these women were in their 40s when they were killed. So they had lived pretty long lives by the standards of the Victorian era for working class women. They'd lived full lives. Mary Jane Kelly, who was the youngest, was about 25 when she was murdered. And still, that's kind of middle age. And the reason why they ended up there, and again, this is like the great fallacy is is to believe that if somebody is poor, they end up in Whitechapel automatically. It's like, you know, that's the only place you can go. I think, as I mentioned before, London was 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 riddled with slums everywhere. You could go anywhere. But, you know, Whitechapel was a particularly bad slum. And these women ended up there because their marriages had broken down, because they went there for work. They followed partners there. It was just one of the parts of town that you would live in when you were down on your luck. What's interesting for me as a Londoner reading your book is thinking about the areas described and thinking about how they're different. I mean, Whitechapel these days is very well to do, very expensive houses, very hipster coffee shops. And obviously that's incredibly different to what it was like 150 years ago. Something that hasn't changed all that much, one might argue, is this issue of male violence against women. To what extent have we moved on from those days these days? Obviously, a lot has changed for women. I mean, I, I would it, it would be ridiculous for me to sit here and argue that nothing had changed for women uh, since 1888. Women have tremendously more opportunity. Their lives are infinitely better than they were in, in the 1880s, which was very restrictive. However, having said that, women are still facing systemic misogyny. Something happens to a woman. The first question that is always asked is, well, what did she do? What did she do to incur this? So the murder of Sarah Everard or Sabina Nessa are very good examples of that. Here are two women, again, in 2021, who were outside at night by themselves and were set upon by two male murderers. And they did nothing to, to incur that. They did nothing at all. And yet, often that's the question that we ask, the thing we want to know. That was the case with the Yorkshire Ripper uh, case as well, where this idea that these women were out at night and because they were out at night alone, they must be prostitutes and prostitutes are bad women and therefore bad women get what's coming to them. So we have this strain that still exists, you know, this kind of victim blaming, the questioning of the woman, of what she did. Was her skirt too short? How was she behaving? You know, when men are violent towards women, we do have this prejudice against women. And I think that's very deeply ingrained in our culture. And we have to start questioning this and we have to root it out. And we have to ask questions. I mean, I entirely agree. It even gets more complicated when you start adding in other systemic issues, along with misogyny, things like race. You mentioned the murderers of Sarah Everard and Sabina Nessa, but 
There's also a lot of talk about how Sarah Everard, who is a white middle-class woman, got a huge amount more press coverage than obviously Nessa, who is Asian. Absolutely, yeah. We can't ignore the intersectionality of, of, of this. And also the idea of the less dead, this idea that somehow there are people who society values less. And these people, when they are murdered, are considered less dead than, for example, the white Oxford graduate, you know, the white Yale graduate. People don't care as much about the drug addict who's a woman of color who's murdered. And that woman is considered less dead. And that's a really, really chilling thing to consider. And I think it's reflected in our media coverage. And I think if anybody really is at the vanguard of changing these ideas and the way we look at murder and the way we look at victims. I mean, if anybody can really change this, it's got to be the media. It's got to be the way the newspapers write about it. It's got to be the way they're talked about on social media. It's got to be the way we talk about them on television. Because first of all, we need to stop glamorizing the, the killer. We need to stop making it about the killers. It's not the killer's story. And also there is there should be no hierarchy of who is more important in terms of who has been murdered. There should be no less dead. Every single life is a valuable life. Every single life is a valuable life. And until we absolutely absorb that, take that in fully and integrate it into our society, we have some big problems. I agree. I thought one of the most impressive things that happened in New Zealand, there was a mass shooting. The Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, said that the name of the killer will never pass her lips and she does not want anyone to remember him. And I think that's one of the best things we can do to honour victims and to is to not give their killer any kind of coverage. I don't want to know, in some ways, the names of any of these people. I don't want to know what they look like. I don't want to know their story. I want to know the stories of the victims. And I think that's what's so good, if I may say so, about your book, is it is all about the victims, not about Jack. That was intentional. <laughs> so your book did very well. As you say, it won the Bailey Gifford Prize. Uh, and now you have launched a podcast about it as well. Could you tell me a little bit about that and why you decided to go into the podcasting world? So the book did very well. And it came to the notice of my producers at Pushkin, who are uh, based in the United States. They thought it would make a very good podcast. And in fact, what we do with a podcast, which makes it different from books. So if you've read the book, and even if you haven't read the book, it kind of picks up from where the story in the book leaves off. So we look at things like things I've discussed, like the less dead, and we look at alcoholism and we look at Victorian society, but we look at modern society. We look at systemic misogyny. We look at all sorts of problems that are still with us today that the book touches on, but we follow those a little bit further. And we also look a little bit at the Ripper industry and Ripperology as well. And the response to the book, which among some quarters was not especially favorable. Well, Graham, always, always in favour of more people entering podcasts. I think the more people we have listening, the more ears we have on history, I think is better for society. But, you know, I am of Great. course biased on that. Of course you'd be biased. <laughs> 
So so what's next for you? So the podcast that I'm doing now, Bad Women, it is 15 episodes. And then hopefully we'll be back with another season. But I'm also writing a book right now, which is about the murder of Belle Elmore by Dr. Crippen in 1910. And for those of you not familiar with this, it was a, a very high profile murder in 1910. Uh, Dr. Crippen and his wife, his wife was a, a musical performer. They were Americans and they came to the UK and were living here at a very interesting time, both for women and just for the world in general. And they had a very bad marriage and Crippen fell in love with his receptionist and and killed his wife in order to be with her. And then they ran away together dressed as father and son and were caught and Crippen was found guilty of murdering his wife and was executed and Ethel, his mistress, was was exonerated. But the interesting thing is that there's a lot more to this story than just that. There are many layers. Um, and there was also a first wife in the United States who died under very mysterious circumstances. So I'm going to be looking at all of this and this Edwardian world um, and picking it apart and um, – really kind of delving quite deep into a lot of these dark corners. Well, sounds great. And I'm very much looking forward to reading it. Thanks, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure speaking. Oh, well, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I hope that you all enjoyed that interview. You can buy The Five from all good bookstores, and I've put a link in the description as well. Bad Women is available from wherever you get your podcasts. A very happy new year to you all, and I'll be back in two weeks for the next instalment in season four of the podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.